everyone, this is Nathan Hayes from the Focal Point Podcast, um, IDOC's Practice Finance Consultant. Good to be with you today. Today, I want to talk about associates, associate compensation, how to manage them, when to recruit them, how to recruit them a little bit. Um, and, and just coming out of the, the COVID shutdowns, there's a lot of doctors looking at their opportunities in front of them, younger doctors looking to expand, uh, older doctors looking for coverage to reduce their exposure to their patients. Um, starting to think about transition plans. Uh, you know, lots of people are rethinking where they are. And one thing I, I'd say on the front of this, so we're going to talk about just recruitment, compensation, and, and managing associates today as an agenda. Um, I, I see the opportunities there. I think, again, as all of us have been massively disrupted in our working lives, as I record from home and warn you, you may hear children yelling in the background at some point. ODs as well are thinking about what, what do I want to do? Is it really worth it for me to slave away my weekends in a corporate job in a bin box setting to um, not use all the skills I have, uh, just blowing through tons of patients in an ophthalmology setting? So there's a lot of young ODs looking for um, a new opportunity. And, and a lot of this, and this, this will apply in two ways, but the sense of job security for optometrists, I think, is, is diminished right now. Um, even for owners, the sense of economic security. But if you're an employed OD right now, um, you or many of your friends were furloughed, um, you were let go and not being brought back. Um, and, and so that, that has two things. One, if you've been recruiting for associates, I think there are a lot of associates on the market that are interested. Um, they may not be not unemployed, because that's really hard to find an unemployed OD, but there are a lot that are looking for different opportunities that are unhappy with how they are treated. Other thing, older owners, I am anecdotally beginning to suspect that what these shutdowns and furloughs meant for a lot of young doctors, uh, particularly Gen Z, but also probably even millennials, like I'm, I'm in the front of that, that age category, um, is that if you don't own, you don't have job security. And I'm sensing a lot more appetite to buy uh, from young ODs. So if you're, if you're thinking about your transition plan, uh, it may well be that you know, if you talk to some young ODs in your area, they're interested. And I can tell you for a fact that they're young OD practice owners that see this as an opportunity to grow by acquisition and are looking at opportunities to buy. So that, that's an aside, and we'll talk about that a little more in, in another venue. But in terms of getting an associate in the practice, just bear in mind a lot of them are, are um, looking for things. Now, new opportunities, that is. And, and I want to say there's a bit of a friendly debate in this space um, I'll give you my view of where we are in terms of the supply of optometrists in the marketplace. Many people look at all the schools opening up across the country and saying, well, we're clearly oversaturating the marketplace. And at the same time, most ODs that we work have a really hard time finding a doctor. It's not like ODs are hanging off trees to be employed. Um, and, and I'll tell you what I think is happening. You know, one, we, I do think that we have a recruitment problem in optometry. And even if you look at the, the increased number of schools being opened, that hasn't translated to more doctors graduating. The number of seats being filled is flat, even as the number of schools has increased. So some schools reduce their enrollments. And, and so at least one of two things is happening. My, my CFO happens to think that we have a massive misallocation of ODs. And that this is to some extent true. And 
Um, sorry, ice maker's going off in the background. Um, this is to some extent true, and I think there's certainly, if you're in an urban setting, it's easier to recruit than if you're in a rural setting. And there are doctors, um, you know, we work with a doctor, very rural Southwest. I've been working for seven years trying to sell his business, and he hasn't even been able to find someone to come out and work for him until this year. And finally, he's, you know, thankfully, and congratulations, able to sell because someone was willing to come to his town. At the very least, we have a misallocation of ODs where they're preferring to be in urban settings to rural settings. I think there's an outright shortage. I think that with a growing population, an aging population, you know, and with ophthalmology seeing most primary care at optometry and even medical eye care and focusing on surgeries, there's just a shortage of ODs. And so it stands to reason that it's going to be hard to find associates. The other thing that will back this up, I, I track every year, Review of Optometry puts out a survey in December of... Um, optometrists and, and asked them how much they were earning. Last year, this past year in 2019, they had nine, just about 900 respondents. And, and those wages have been pushing up year over year. It's not like they've gone down. A couple of years ago, they were up 20% almost, 18, 19% year over year. So you know, not only do we anecdotally see it um, in terms of the experience of our members trying to recruit, not only do we see it in terms of the number of seats being filled in optometry schools, um, we see it in the wage data, You know, where there's a shortage, the so price then goes up because demand exceeds supply. And also, just in, in demographically, I think it bears keeping in mind that the, the graduating classroom autonomy schools now are um, 60 to 70% female, and um, women do a great job owning practices. It is not to say they can't, but um, you know, basic biology and lifestyle dictates that a lot of those young women and you know, motherhood-age women are, are making different choices about being full-time. So even if we were graduating more ODs, which we're not necessarily, or not by much, um, the ODs we're graduating don't represent 40 hours of patient care a week, by and large. Not all of them do, by any stretch. Many of them will, and I don't, I, I don't want to stereotype here, but it does stand to reason we work with enough um, women practice owners who, you know, it is something of a bigger priority to have control of time and lifestyle than, than men who tend to, not always, prioritize income and and you know i should say that you know there are definitely you know i can think of women who are in the seven figure earner list as owners that i've worked with so it's not it's not as though they don't do great they do all right so what does this mean for for uh, recruiting associates i think the first thing is at least part of the issue private practices have in recruiting associates is that they just aren't keeping up with the wages and we were reviewing some stuff that Dr. Neil Garmer put together for Prima and IDOC over the years in terms of what he recommends for associate comp, and he was starting at 95000 Well, I'm working with the schools of optometry every year, and before COVID-19 hit, before the zombie apocalypse descended upon us, average wages for an associate coming in were about, you know, the offers for private practice were 120 and in corporate settings, it's probably more like 140 to 150 for full-time. This is an OD with no experience, starting income, $120,000 package uh, salary. So benefits are going to write on top of that. Um, and again, in a, in a corporate or ophthalmology setting, that was more like $140,000 to $150,000 a year. I'm going to speak in annualized terms. So if you are hiring for a three-day-a-week, four-day-a-week associate, um, just you're going to need to prorate these numbers, but it's easier to think in terms of full-time. If, if you look at the employed income by private practice settings, um, 
you know, the, the, the highest paying group practices might average $160,000. Um, private practices were averaging in 2019. And this is OD or MD, which I think is a mistake, uh, but more on that in a minute. Um, about $126,000 a year, $127,000 a year. So that's, if 125, let's say, is average, you know, where are you starting your employees? And, and consider whether or not um, you, you just need to up your, your offers to get people in the door. And the thing I'll stress is, you know, I was working with an owner who was you know, very concerned about the difference between offering $110,000, $120,000 a year. And, and I want to acknowledge, you know, a lot of my job is spending other people's money and not my own because I don't own your practice. But you really do have to consider the opportunity when you're hiring an associate. That if you can fill their schedule and get them busy, you, I mean, they, they can produce for your business, you know, 600,000, 800,000, a million, a million two in revenue. I was working with an OD last week who, you know, he was, he was really disappointed in his associate's um, prescribing patterns. And, you know, the associate had really quite, you know, below $300,000 or $300,000, below $300 per comprehensive exam average revenue per exam, which is low. I mean, national norms are probably close to $375 per comprehensive exam. So really not happy with his, his associate's um, production in terms of revenue per exam, medical eye care, even eyewear sell through, just not very happy. So we go into his Edge Pro numbers and take a look. And his associate, because his associate's seeing patients 40 hours a week and is seeing a full load of you know, 16 conferences a day plus whatever follow-ups are mixed in there, his associate's producing $1.2 million a year. And so a little, a little context needs to be brought into this doctor to say, hey, your associate's producing a ton of money for you. And yeah, it could be better, but if you can just fill an associate's schedule, they're going to produce. And, you know, if we're talking about $100,000 swings into your practice's income, which means about half of that on growth. So if, if you grow $100,000, we would expect before we pay an associate $50,000 to fall to the bottom line. And maybe we're paying that associate $20,000, $30,000 per day work. So you're going to make more money if you grow. And I think sometimes we get a little short-sighted on the opportunity to get really caught up on a five dollars or $10,000 swing in our pay package to an associate. Where if we'd hit right, and, and all of this is risk and reward, but if you hit on an associate, if they grow your business by $600,000 and you pay them $150,000, well, on growth, the only cost of seeing more patients unless you need to expand, add lanes, add equipment, if you have the space to do it, the only cost to grow is your cost of goods and the cost of your non-OD staff. So you'll need some techs to support that, maybe some other staff. Most practices are going to spend about half their collected revenues on cost of goods and non-OD staff. So if you grow by $600,000, the cost tied to that growth, apart from the doctor, is $300,000 for cost of goods and non-OD staff. And then if you're paying the doctor, pick your number, $120,000, $130,000, you know, you're still increasing your income by $180,000, you know, $70,000 a year. Um, so I think we can be pennies wise and pounds foolish sometimes and worrying about small swings in compensation to get someone in. And so just, just be aware of that and and keep up with what people are making and know that by the way, your associates, your new grads are going to have opportunities to make more than you would pay them in another setting. What are the trade-offs to that? And it's worth remembering that the trade-off and we've alluded to this, but the trade-off of working in a retail setting or a big box is one, you're probably going to be seeing a patient every 10 minutes. You're not going to practice full scope optometry. You're not going to be flexing those medical eye care muscles as much. 
And, and by and large, you're going to be working weekends no matter what. In an ophthalmology setting, similarly, you don't get to scratch the retail itch as much. And you're also going to see a similar, similar patient load. And because of that, that pace and the, the production, these, these companies are driving off of their associates relative to most private practices. They can afford to pay more. And, and, and they need to. And a lot of young ODs, just, they're so afraid of their um, student loan debt that they, they just want to go chase as much income as they can to pay it down. And that's, that's understandable. Um, and the other thing that isn't there in those other settings is there usually is no path to ownership. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should bring associates in with the idea of owning down the line or on any set timeline, but it, it, you know, many owners that are bringing in associates are thinking this is part of my transition plan. If this associate wanted to buy my practice when I'm ready to retire, that would be great. Um, Lens Crafters is not thinking an associate's going to buy that location. Sometimes it happens, but it's not really part of the plan. So while there may be less income, there's a better quality of life, there's a, a more robust scope of practice being exercised, opportunities for ownership. Um, so there's reasons why associates should want to come into a private practice setting, even though it may pay a little less. Now, um, one last thought on recruitment. I encourage you, if you're thinking about this, reach out to our consulting team. I probably do a little more with compensation. My colleague, Dr. Vargo, does a little more with recruiting. Um, I, I do think if, you, if you're in the market for an associate, a great place to start is two places. I would definitely start with your reps because they're out in the field and they'll probably have contacts and kind of know who's disaffected as an associate and who's not. You certainly can advertise for it, but I think, I think your reps may know your practice and help you narrow it down a little more. Reach out to your local societies. Don't, don't deal with the doctors in the societies, but deal with the staff. They're the ones talking to doctors on a regular basis and know. And just do your general networking with young ODs, um, it's a little harder now where we can't get together in person. But you know, if and when, well, when we get back to meeting in person for some of these things, you can always just you know inquire with people. Hey, would you, if you'd be interested, let me know. I'm 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 looking for someone with these skills. Um, and as you recruit for an associate, one question that's worth asking is, do I want to duplicate myself? Do I want to complement myself? And what I mean by that is, it may be that. You just do general primary care and you want to do more of that. And um, you just, you're finding someone who can do what you do and do more of it. Or it may be that you either want to focus on something or give something up and you recruit an associate to say, I don't know, see Davis and Spectera patients or, um, or, 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 um, sorry, being interrupted again. Um, or you want to focus on something like sclerals and you want someone to take over primary care. You want to focus on VT and PEDs or whatever it is. You may want to compliment yourself and find someone to do the stuff you don't want to do that you see an opportunity for so that you can focus on the things that you're best at. Um, now, now, once we get to compensation, I think there's a, there's a spectrum of how doctors want to pay uh, their associates. And as you're bringing someone in, you sort of... On a comp form, you want to consider two things. I mean, what's the risk of what you're paying and the associate comes in and doesn't produce? Because that does happen. Um, young ODs come in and they really don't understand how they get paid. In other words, they get paid out of the revenue they generate for the business and, and what their responsibilities are. And we'll, we'll come to sort of how to manage that in, in closing to this. Um, so on the one hand, you, you risk paying someone a lot of money, $100,000, a year potentially, to not produce in your business. And you also have a risk, depending on how you structure the compensation, 
that you're going to pay them a lot of money, um, well above sort of that market rate, which is, let's just say it's between $120,000 and $150,000 a year for an associate in most cases, um, by, by having a very aggressive incentive plan. And so, you know, the best example of this would be take your associate producing 1.2 million, which is really the outcome of the doctor filling his schedule. He's, and we've said he's not particularly good at prescribing eyewear. He's not doing a great job using the instruments in the office to, to bill for medical eye care. But just filling his schedule means he produces. Um, and so it's really, you know, if we paid that $1.2 million associate 15% of his production, he would be earning, if we paid him 18% of his production, he'd be earning north of $200,000 a year. And, and again, you pay it because someone said years ago, hey, associates, you know, if you, if you pay them on production, they'll be motivated to produce more. No guarantees of that. And um, even if they do produce, is it really them doing it or is it you? So I'll tell you this. The, the formula I hate more than anything else is a pay package that says we will pay you $110,000 a year or 17% of your production or 18 or 16%, whichever's higher. Because in my view, that means the practice is bearing both sides of the risk. They bear the risk of paying an associate who doesn't produce more than they're worth. And they risk paying an associate who does produce a lot of money, more than market value. And there's no guarantee that that associate's production is a result of them being particularly charismatic selling doctors. Um, their production is more the result of the owner's acumen as a leader, as a manager, as a team, the practice set up that they've, they've built their ability to fill the schedule. And I'll stress filling the schedule is the most important thing. So I, I really don't like that. The way I would frame it is this. Really good baseline formula to me uh, for full-time, again, $110,000 plus 2%. And, and if you think about what the range of outcomes on that are, are going to be, New doctor comes in, produces a half million dollars in the first year, which I think is very, very average production for a full-time OD, um, probably below average in my view. Um, 2% of $500,000 is $10,000, so 110000 plus 10000 is 120000 And voila, you're right in sort of average range for that new grad. And really pretty close to, to uh, you know, fair range for an associate who's um, got some experience making 125, maybe 130, 135. Um, you know, going up the scale, my, my target for any OD in the practice working full-time is I want to see a million dollars in production. Um, to get there, it, it really takes, on five days a week, it takes 14 comprehensive exams a day, consistently averaging $300 per comprehensive exam over 48 weeks a year to be a million dollar producer. Again, that doctor I referenced earlier was seeing 16 a day, probably 50 weeks a year. It was a $1.2 million producer. So realistically, if you can fill someone's schedule, they're going to produce unless something's really broken in your receivables or something else. So at a million dollars, that package is worth 130000 At say 1.3, which is probably the upper limit, that 110 plus 2% is worth 136000 And again, you can add cost of living adjustments to that base over time. Um, the, the reason I like this is that most associates coming in are, tend to be more risk averse. They want to know they're going to get paid. And so fine, we'll guarantee you a, a really nice base wage. You're going to make money. Um, but you're not going to have that huge upside that 18% would give you. 
but it still gives us an, a reason to talk to you about what's your pacing, what are your prescribing pat- patterns, what's the standard of care you're offering, because w- how much income you generate for the business is going to affect your compensation at some level. And we're talking ten, twenty thousand dollars a year. It's not insignificant. Um, on the other end, and and I have seen practices, I'm, I'm, you know, in full disclosure, switch from more of a base pay to a pure say, eat what you kill, pure production formula, and see their associate's production change. So depending on the personality of the person you're dealing with, you may say, hey, I want to switch to a uh, you know, production schedule. Typically, that's been historically between 15 and 18% of production, I'd say, right now. More what you see is 17 or 18% being the percentages paid out, sometimes 16% um, of production. I, where I would do that most likely is a couple of cases. If I have a young OD who's clearly money motivated, who has ties to the community, is going to go build their own patient base, I will happily pay them a percentage of their production to do that. Uh, the reality is that very few young ODs are going to go build their own patient base. And, and the trade-off I would make is, listen, you're going to bear the risk of your ability to fill your schedule. If you can't fill it, you don't get paid. Um, but if you do fill your schedule, you have um, the ability to make far more than I would have paid you on um, on a on a normal scale. So let's go through our example targets. Say five hundred thousand, one million, and one point three million. Again, our one hundred ten thousand plus two percent at five hundred thousand was worth one hundred twenty. On the eighteen percent, it's only worth ninety thousand dollars. Again, they're making a lot less because they're taking the risk on themselves to fill their schedule. At the million dollar level, 110,000 plus 2% is $130,000 a year total comp before benefits. At 18%, 18% of a million is $180,000. And this is where the premium starts to pick in. And by the way, I'm, I'm very, very happy to pay someone a lot of money to grow your business for you. If someone, let's say you drop a day even, so the business only is growing seven to $800,000, that's, let's say $800,000. So let's say half of that falls to gross profit, that's $400,000 in increased profit, assuming you didn't have to add space and you pay the associate $180,000, you're making $220,000 more on this associate um, who helped grow your business. Happy to pay that for that kind of return. And then at 1.3 million, that 18% of production doctors making $235,000. That, you know, a couple things on those high, high production percentages, you can use it to give a doctor golden handcuffs so they don't want to leave. In other words, you're going to make more working here than you can make anywhere else because there's really nowhere that's paying 200,000 plus to an associate. It's a way to keep a money-motivated doctor satisfied and with the, the practice without giving up equity and control in the practice if you want to um, maintain that. And, and just remember, most practices are netting, say, between, to the doctors at least, 27 to 33% on average in rural settings is probably a little more than that. Um, so if you give up 18% of their production, you're still making money on that doctor. So... I might use in that circumstance, I may use it with a seller to make sure that he or she doesn't just slack off um, after the sale if they're going to stay on. So a couple of scenarios where I'd use that. Um, but that's kind of the range. And just understand with that, the more risk an associate's willing to take on themselves to be productive or fill their schedule, the more I'm willing to pay them. Um, the less risk, I think a great formula is a heavy base with a very modest incentive. Um, I will just throw out that there's there's a path in the middle of that that I've used for an associate. Um, we've used this in a couple of cases, but 
Um, you can split the baby and say, like, do half of that normal base plus 10% in circumstances where an associate desperately wants to be in the practice. Maybe it's a specialty practice. They just, they just really want to be there, but we can't fill their schedule yet. And so, you know, maybe you set the base pay at the number of days you can fill and say, look, you have two choices. You can either go out and get patients and fill them in as many days you can fill. We'll, we'll let you work here. You can go supplement your income, but we're not going to guarantee you a ton of money for pay- days we can't fill. If, if that's your circumstance, let's give me a call and let's talk about uh, how to handle that. But, but again, think of a continuum. The more, the more, um, will give higher income potential if someone needs to fill their schedule and go out and recruit patients and grow your business for you. That's what I'm stressing. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to pay a heavy base or that. Um, so the more risk the associate takes, the more income they can make. Also, the more risk they have, they don't make a lot of money. And the less um, risk they want to take, the, the more modest the incentive on top of that. On any of these, what I would do is just mechanically on like that one ten plus two percent, or even the eighteen percent of production, um, you're gonna have that normal salary, and I'd, I'd bonus out quarterly. Um, and eighteen percent, maybe it's a really low, you know, three hundred fifty, four hundred dollars a day. So you are bearing some risk, but not near like six hundred dollars a day. Um, and it just quarterly, give it four to six weeks after the quarter's close, so you can see what the receivables are, and then pay out a bonus quarterly. And I think quarterly is a good cadence for a professional OD. Um, benefits on top of that, follow your normal patterns. Um, you can do stipends on top of it. I mean, I, I plan on adding whatever your, your monetary compensation is, you're probably looking at another, um, 10 to 15% above that in terms of benefits, depending on your mix of 401k profit sharing and health insurance. So there's that one other thing just as a note, and it's not tax deductible yet, but as a, as a something you have in your pocket, um, we're hearing some ophthalmology groups, instead of doing like a 3% contribution to 401ks, they're doing a 3% contribution directly to someone's um, uh, student loans. And, and there was, I believe, a carve-out in the CARES Act that let that be deductible this year. Who knows if that'll be continued. Something to think about just in terms of what people want. Uh, most associates are graduating with, let's just say, 150000 to $250,000 in student loan debt. They're very worried about it. Um, and, and so thinking in those terms in your benefits package might make you more attractive. Um, even if I would say probably they're better off having that given to their 401k. Okay. Last, last little bit. Um, let's talk about managing associates and I'll keep this brief, but I think that one of the big mismatches I see between doctors who have associates, their satisfaction with associate performance and, and what they're doing. I mean, the gap tends to be pretty big. And I think a lot of owners assume that, hey, this is a professional optometrist. They're going to do a good job. And, and the reality is, depending on where they're coming from or if they've been out of school at all, um, it's your practice and, and you have a way you want your patients to be cared for. And I, I think that there's some clinical autonomy on how to, how to you know, handle certain circumstances. But you do have the, the right and authority to say, hey, this is the suite of products we use in our practice. This is what the level of service, the script we want to follow by and large with our, with our patients. And, and I think that at the end of the day, and this is a quote I'll, I'll use a lot because I think it's helpful in terms of talking to our teams. And, and I, I say this because my title is practice finance consultant. It's assumed that I'm a greedy capitalist who just wants to make more money for you guys. And, and there's some truth to that. But money is a tool to buy free time and less stress as well. 
and ownership. So most owners I work with um, really aren't necessarily striving to make more money, but wanting to have better quality of life with it, while preserving their income. Um, but, but for the practice, and I think the thing we have to remember is that, that the revenue someone generates is the output of doing their job. And their job is caring for patients' eyes. Can't stress this enough. Revenue is the output of caring for your patients. And therefore, the revenue a doctor generates is reflective of how many patients they've cared for and how much care they've given those patients or how much care those patients have consumed from the doctor. And, and I think it's important to say it this way. Um, we don't prescribe multiple pairs of glasses because we want to take all the patient's money. We prescribe multiple pairs because of what a patient needs to have their best vision at all points of their day. Um, and and we, I ask this question and practices routinely tell me, hey, most the average patient in glasses needs two to three pairs. Um, even our content lens patients need a backup pair and probably some Plano Suns to go with it. And, and so it's, it's not as though this isn't what a patient needs. We're not trying to talk them into stuff they don't need. And it's, I think it's okay, owners, to, to lay out, hey, we, we think the majority of our patients, especially professionals like me, you know, they might need an everyday pair for out and about and a pair of computer glasses for their work every day staring at a screen as I stare at screens talking to you right now and looking at stuff. Uh, so we're doing Zoom all day if you've been consulting with us. Um, and getting to see me dressed down compared to when you see me in person at professional events. So it's, it's okay to, to ask about this because we're really setting a standard of care for our practice. And I think owners should have a monthly meeting with the clinicians. If you're a larger multi-site practice, maybe this is several different meetings. But in that you pull, hey, what's everyone's revenue generated, their patient counts, their revenue per exam, and we're going to pull just however you want to do it. Just pull five charts and do grand rounds. But what you want to say is that if revenue per exam is the best metric for how much care and the standard of care we're giving, and I do believe it is, then there's no reason that owners shouldn't expect um, that their associate doctors have the same revenue per exam as them, assuming they're seeing roughly the same patient base. I mean, if you're, if you're 68 and all your patients are presbyopes and you hire a 30-something young OD who's seeing a bunch of families and kids... Okay, maybe that explains something. But that's usually not the case. And you know, we, we just want to see and have it be standard. Because a lot of owners, when you hire an associate, yes, you see a growth opportunity to, to continue to expand your practice. But part of the deal also is you want more time for yourself and you're going to be pushing off some of your patients to that associate doctor. And as you're pushing off those patients, um, if you're giving up 40% revenue per exam to hand them off, you're losing money every patient you give up. It works against your goals. And I didn't mention this before, but in the same way that paying 18% to an associate when you want to reduce your schedule works against your goals because every time you hand off a patient to that associate, they get busier, they produce more, they cost more to the practice. Um, but you, you want to be consistent so you feel good. It, it's your business. It's your business and you have a certain standard that, that you want of care to be delivered. You don't own unless you want to do it your way. And I think it's appropriate to ask that your associates, by and large, see patients the way you want. Um, I talk with a super high-end practice where the associate uh, was just doing everything he could to save his patients money. And, you know, recommend lower-cost alternatives or sending them to Costco. Just, you know, and just told the owners, like, listen, you got to tell this guy. There may be places where the goal of your patient care is to have your patients spend as little as possible 
on their optical solutions, that this isn't it. This, this practice, our practice, is about offering the best solutions, and yes, they're gonna cost a fair amount of money. But they're better, and that's what we're about. Those, those alternatives exist. If you want to, young doctor, associate, whom we're paying, if you want to be in a place where your job is to generate, you know, have patients spend as little as possible on their visual solutions, knock yourself out, but that's not here. And, and by the way, if you go to one of those places, you will find that that's just a, an for $100. Um, but but meet, meet monthly, review the numbers, set the standards, pull the charts. It gives your associates a chance. You can model to them how you're caring for patients. It gives you the chance to see what they're doing. And, and really, I mean, revenue per exam is a function of both how much you prescribe and also how well you bill in code. And that's not always often an issue, but it is in some cases that young doctors out of school are, are terrified of um, <laughs> being prosecuted for overbilling. So it gives you visibility in what's going on. It gives them um, the ability to see what you're doing and you can learn from one another. I mean, young ODs are, if you're older, uh, they're coming out of school with a, just a, a depth of medical eye care instruction that, that you didn't get. And so chances are you can learn something from them, but also model for them. So this is the real world of practicing optometry as opposed to spending two hours per patient in clinic when you're in optometry school. So, so don't forget that as we, as we bring doctors in and we pay them appropriately to get them in because the opportunity is there for growth, as we structure their compensation in a way that meets our needs to protect our risk, both for paying them if they don't produce and also overpaying if they do produce, um, that, that anytime we have that incentive in place, we still need to coach our doctors and, and review what's happening and have visibility into how they're caring for our patients. The, 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 the biggest thing, I was talking to my father-in-law who's a lawyer, he was in town this past weekend. And you know, one of the challenges for lawyers, and particularly the way he practiced law, is that it was so dependent on him, he could never build a business around it. He just worked his tail off for 40 years and still does you know, periodically when clients really need him. And, and for OD practice owners, and I, I don't mean this as a diminishment, but w- when you have a couple who are running a practice together where, say, one spouse is the doctor and one spouse is the manager... I'll regularly tell them, hey, the doctor's spouse is pretty replaceable in this practice. We can find good doctors. A good manager of practice is a little harder to replace. But even as, as I say that, the real challenge for a solo OD who owns for control to do it their way, to be in control, to, to grow the business around you, to buy yourself flexibility of time, and, and just to buy higher income for the growth of multiple doctors, coverage if you get hurt. And there's a lot of reasons to try to get past being a one-doctor practice to a two-doctor practice. Um, but one of the intellectual challenges of that as an owner is how do, I repl- how do I get someone to do it my way? How do I replace what I'm doing and, and systematize it so it can be done? Now, I was trained by Dr. Neil Gelmard. had a wonderful practice until he sold it. But one of the, the neat features of his practice was he had three associate doctors. He and his wife saw very few patients. And every doctor, whether it was an owner, Dr. Gilmard's wife, Susan, uh, who's also an OD, so the doctor's Gilmard, or their associates produced at the same level, something like 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 million per year. Um, and it was all systems. It was, we have our exam script, we have our process, our flow, everyone's seeing the same volume of patients, everyone's, you know, recommending the same suite of solutions, doing the same tests. And, and... It was a wonderful business, and he was able to spend a lot of time in, in a whole other state, frankly, because of it. So it's been done before. Is it hard? Yes, but, but going through the work um, 
and taking the time to review these things and, and make the case with your doctors and your staff, frankly, on what's our standard of care for the practice can make a huge difference. So um, summing up, uh, you know, we're coming out of this and I think many of us, I'll concede for those of you in the Northeast, you're still sort of just trying to get back open and I'm sorry for that, but the rest of the country is kind of there already. Um, there's a real opportunity if you've been thinking on an associate to work your networks and find some doctors who maybe still have their jobs but are highly dissatisfied with how they're treated through COVID and looking for new opportunities. Uh, whether that be to just be in a more family-oriented environment where they have, frankly, some more security. I'm very pleased with how our practices and IDOC treated their staffs and associates through COVID. Um, maybe with an eye towards ownership or just doing what they really wanted to do because they're rethinking their priorities. So work the network. If you're recruiting for associates, I think it's a pretty good time to do it, number one. Number two, um, be sure you're compensating them fairly. Uh, even new grads before COVID were starting at $120,000 in private practice. Um, and, and just remember the upside opportunity. If you fill their schedule, and this is the big question when recruiting associates, can you fill their schedule? But if you fill their schedule, you can get the return. And... Um, Structuring compensation, just remember that, that if an associate wants to make a lot of money, say $180,000, $200,000, then they need to take all the risk to fill their own schedule. And, and most associates really don't want to take that risk. I think a, a, you know, a healthy base, one hundred dollars to $120,000, I kind of start at one ten, just a working number for full time, plus 2% of production is enough to give someone a good income that's fair, also give you a reason to manage their productivity because it matters for them numerically. And, and finally, don't skip the step of setting a standard of care for your practice, holding your associates to it, framing it in terms of patient care. And, and again, have a monthly clinician's lunch. It's a great way to, to grow as doctors, to open the lines of communication on other issues and, and make sure that what's happening is you spend, you know, these are your most expensive employees, that they're delivering the care that you expect and generating the production that you want. So, I will leave it there. If you want to talk about your situation in more depth, um, certainly that's available to you through IDOC's consulting team, me and Dr. Vargo primarily. Um, and be safe, be well, and um, trust So signing off from Focal Point, this is Nathan Hayes with IDOC.